Sturdy old part of the city where the sun refused to shine. People tell me there ain't no use in trying. Now, my girl, you're so young and pretty, and one thing I know is true you've been dead before your time is due. I know. It's very easy to uh, create a half-baked piece of work. It's uh, uh, seductive, and uh, uh, the temptation of uh, être paresseux, uh, the um, pull of doing something that's not finished yet, uh, an incompleted work, and what we can in fact call a half-baked piece of work is very strong. And it's strong on me because I'm not in a situation... Life-wise, uh, currently where I'm having people hammering at me to make sure it's just right or chipping away at inconsistencies or um, questioning um, uncorroborated uh, statements. So it's possible, certainly in my own life, to um, do work that is not sufficiently vetted, even in terms of my own critical 
thinking and apparatus and reflection. And um, so, for example, the last podcast I did, which I wanted to do, and I stand by the basic uh, movement of it and the dynamic of it and what I was actually attempting to say there, was essentially half-baked. It wasn't really fully cooked and uh, more as a as a as a creative effort rather than as uh, related to the substance of it um, this uh, podcast um, I hope is more fully baked mainly because I've lived it and because I've lived it it um, it feels like it's authentic. These are words, you know, but because I've lived it, I feel I can sign it in blood. Now, let me give you an example of, and this, by the way, is podcast 161 entitled PBS. That's P for Percy, B for Bish, and S for Shelley. PBS. Let me give you an example of an artistic project which is entirely unhalf-baked, or rather fully baked and fully cooked and ready to go. That would be the amazing, what's today sometimes called a tabletop, but we used to say coffee table book, that has been produced by um, John Harris Harper in Birmingham, a coffee table book entitled Witnesses to the Light. And this book is a parish history of the Cathedral Church of the Advent. That is to say, it fits the genre of books that are called parish histories, and there are thousands of such books. It fits the genre, but it bursts completely out of the genre, or rather fulfills the genre so um, completely that it is truly an astonishing um, production. It is called Witnesses to the Light, and it is a kind of artistic, um, it is an art book, could be could have been done by Abrams, of the all the various... Um, windows and uh, church furniture right down to the ecclesiastical um, vestments and uh, hassocks and uh, um, bits of painted wood in the old Episcopal Cathedral in the city of Birmingham that is not half-baked because it has been put together by sensibility, and I assume this is John Harris Harper's, uh, someone I know for many years. I think John put this together in a theological and spiritual matrix that organized all the elements into something that is uh, really much larger than the sum of its parts. Most parish histories, and I think I probably read about 350 of them. I say that that's uh, I don't want to be half baked here. I have haunted the Payne Library of Virginia Theological Seminary of the Episcopal Church, and I've haunted the uh, wonderful library at the General Theological Seminary in Chelsea, New York City for decades studying uh, old parish histories of Episcopal parishes, looking for um, evidence and signs of the uh, church conflicts that erupted in the church in relationship to the Oxford movement in the middle part of the 19th century. And uh, many parishes were actually founded to um, be exponents of the Oxford or Anglo-Catholic movement, what's now called Anglo-Catholicism, but was then called the Oxford movement. And uh, many parishes 
took very determined stances against this kind of ritualistic <clears throat> version of the prayer book. It may seem small potatoes to us today, but there was a period when I studied hundreds of old parish histories, and what you always found out is that you never found out found what you were looking for. If you wanted to find out the real story, what was really going on in a parish, its vestry, its founding fathers, its, uh, its uh, founding rectors or, and staff, you almost never found it. You just found long lists, usually written by people 50, 60 years after the fact, long lists of vestry and clergy and curates and senior wardens and endowed gifts and so forth, but you never found what you were looking for because presumably the people that wrote these parish histories and were interested in writing them were not, in fact, interested in that which was the material reason the parish had come into existence or had had some uh, conflict, and so you never found out what really was going on. And because I've been in church life for so many years, uh, there's always something going on. Sometimes it's very interesting. Sometimes it's very um, tertiary that becomes interesting when it becomes primary, and then it destroys people on all sides of various contested points, from haberdashery to substance and theology. Now, um, what John Harris Harper has done is he has, with an overriding theological commitment and concern as a practicing Christian in the now, he has uh, organized all the material related to the um, formal aspects of the life and the history of the Church of the Advent, and he has put it in a very quiet way. He has edited it and redacted it in such a way that a great spiritual vision, or at least evidence of a spiritual vision and an, sort of the concomitant. The, 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 the growing aggregate of historical memories creating something like a genuinely Christian environment of faith, community, believing, and hope. <clears throat> and he has uh, researched all sorts of letters. He has a letter from Margaret Mitchell, the writer of Gone to the Wind, that is to be seen to be believed. He has a, a discussion of some of the early Adventers who were people who were remarkable people of social conscience, despite the apparent rep of in you know, the, the, the sort of common life of this country in Birmingham. Uh, when you get into anything really at depth, anything from Fort Lee, New Jersey to Birmingham, Alabama, you find depth and power. If you go deep enough, Cousins said that any human life is of great interest if you actually take the time to study it and to find out about what was really happening in a person. Well, Harper has done this in the Church of the Advent, and the book, with its many sidebars, its many uh, excursi, its hysterically funny anecdotes in many points, and its brilliant photographs, and a beautiful coverage, and its very um, high-class but appropriately so, I mean that to say refined presentation, this uh, book is not half-baked. It took John, I think, at least two and a half years to do the work with a tremendous team of associated people who loved the church or who understood it, and in some cases just knew about publishing, and he has produced something that is really magnificent. That is non-half-baked. Now, I hope that this brief podcast will also be non-half-baked. It's short and sweet. And it relates to the insight that you can find in the poems, especially the later uh, poems of Percy Bysshe Shelley. I am no authority on Percy Bysshe Shelley. My understanding of the man goes 
primarily from a very early encounter at the age of nine or ten with the uh, with his wife, his second wife, um, uh, Mary Wollstonecroft Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, and I was much more interested in his wife, Mary W. Mary Wollstonecroft Shelley. Wasn't it Godwin was in there? I'm sure it was a maiden name. But in any event, Mary Shelley was the person I was interested in who married Percy Bysshe Shelley. And it is Mary Shelley's appearance played by Elsa Lanchester in The Bride of Frankenstein that has always captured my attention in the 1935 Depression era Brilliant. It is to horror movies what John Harris Harper's Witnesses to the Light is to parish histories. Now, um, so Percy Bysshe Shelley was someone I knew about and had read a little bit as, uh, you know, in school, bits and bobs. But when I um, learned about the nature, was forced to learn after 2007, I tell the story in the new book, uh, The Panopticon, PZ's Panopticon, An Off-the-Wall Guide to World Religion, I realized there that um, uh, what I was saying about life and death, <clears throat> and especially uh, dying as related to what happens to us after death, was uh, entirely uh, distilled in the uh, infinitely reflective uh, work of the young poet, he died very young in Italy, Percy Bysshe Shelley. His work is powerful. I'm going to read a couple of verses about it, then say something about it. But the reason I want to believe that this is not half-baked is because I, I've i lived the life which he is describing. I have felt the feelings that Percy Bysshe Shelley is giving a further and deeper and better and really inspired voice to. I've felt that. And therefore, um, because I'm so with what he is saying, I feel that I am uh, with the man, although he died, what, in, uh, in 1822, I think, in the summer of 1822. He, um, he said in his uh, last poem, which was not completed, called The Triumph of Life, he, uh, which is very, very amazing, Poem. It could be called the triumph of death. The triumph of life. The 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 word is used in uh, uh, really very ambiguously, ambivalently, and ironically in this long, long poem. And I won't talk about the poem, but he does say this. <clears throat> he sees the human race as proceeding down a vast avenue of futile of f- f- striving and conflict and inner, uh, c- complete, un- unnecessary, uh, hypnotized, um, bedazzled, um, controlled movement by the world, the force of the world, you might call it with a capital W, or as he calls it with a capital L. And life is simply bedazzling and seducing towards an illusion all the human beings, and in fact, all the entities of life, from the hyena to the human, although he is focused on the human. And he says uh, in the um, roughly around line 130, he says, All but the sacred few who could not tame their spirits to the conqueror, but as soon as they had touched the world with living flame, fled back like eagles to their native noon. 
He sees the entire uh, world as uh, going, um, taming their spirits to the conqueror, which is what he considers the the illusion of uh, of the significance of life on its own terms, and the world, the flesh, and the devil. You might say, to talk biblically. Those who could not tame their spirits to the conqueror, but these few, he says, as soon as they had touched the world with living flame, fled back like eagles to their native noon. Um, Shelley's whole uh, vision, philosophically or theologically, because there's a very definite theology here, an independent theology, is that if you brush the world or come close to it and you're given to see it as it is, you must flee it. You, You don't engage. You cannot engage because it will always destroy you. It is much too big for any one spirit, one person. And so the best thing, and very few feel able to do it, and they often feel guilty if they do do it, is to escape. Now let me quote you a passage, something that I think it's one of the best things Heard ever wrote. And I quote it in the Panopticon um, fairly early on when I talk about the need to flee the world and the things of the world, which is Johannine as well as... um, many other, it's a deep truth, whether it's, you want to say it's a religious truth or not, it certainly is common to a number of religious people. And this is what um, Gerald Hurd wrote in the 40s. He said, the verb to escape is clear enough. It means to leave a position which has become impossible. And I wonder, you know, if you really relate to this. I mean, the, the, living in the world is an impossible position. People who tell you that, oh, you know, you want to leave behind a better world than you found it, or you have to engage with the problems of the world. What are you talking about, Paul? You mean we're not supposed to, what are you talking about? You mean we're not supposed to try to make this world a better place and ameliorate it and diminish the ill? Well, yes, but not from the, from the right place, yes. But if you're coming from the, any sense that you actually can do something, quay yourself, and that there is anything that can be done given the nature of what is uh, overseeing us and overriding us and supervising us and controlling us and creating us uh, not to be autonomous but to be heteronymous, if you really think that you can actually do anything, you're, you're, you're a fool. It, it won't work. And, and inevitably, you will find yourself um, disillusioned. And particularly, you'll find yourself disillusioned. Even if you weren't disillusioned by failure, you'll find yourself disillusioned, disillusioned by death. Because when it comes down to it, you'll be in a little tiny room somewhere with all the success you may have had, even if you've done great things in downtown this city, that city, or this particular problem, or that particular social ill. You'll, at a certain point in your life, you have to leave it in any event. You have to leave it completely in any event. And uh, you'll probably find that no one thanks you, and you, that doesn't matter, Natch, but you're sitting in a little tiny room. <clears throat> you can barely talk. You can barely eat. You can still think, and you often, not always, you can still, you're not in a memory unit, let's imagine, but you may be. You can still think, you can still feel, and you can still remember, and you can still recall. And in light of that, where you are now, and the great enigma over where you're going, if anywhere, that would tend to call into question all the high mindedness in the world, which in a sense is burrowed under and really, you know, like Petersburg, the Battle of Petersburg in 1864, was it, or something like that, when they burrowed under the Battle of the Crater to blow up the, the Confederate fortifications. You know, you, you, there's something, no matter how great your fortifications are and how well you've done, the edifice of achievement, let alone even good works you have erected, um, death will undermine it every time, like the Battle of the Crater, and it'll blow you up from below. So I feel that what uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley understood at, a, at an age so young, I mean, remember, Christ was... Th- 
29, 30 when he began. And Shelley here is um, very young. I think he was just about 30 when he, something like that. I think he was about 30, a little bit, maybe 20. He was the age of Christ at the beginning of his earthly ministry when he wrote these words. And I'm going to read what um, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley says about the nature of, uh, of the afterlife and the nature of continuing life in his uh, very um, uh, striking uh, late poem, Adonis. That's spelled A-D-O-N-A-I-S, as if it were to be spelled Adonais. Adonis, and I'm just going to read a little bit of it, and I'm going to say why um, this is... This is what I have expressed. Uh, Actually, it was a mystical experience I had on the... 1st of May of last year, 2013, here where I live, and you can read all about it in uh, the Panopticon, but uh, Shelley um, put words on something that I only uh, sort of glimpsed. The one, oh, by the way, this poem, Adonis, is really a requiem for um, Shelley's friend John Keats, the poet John Keats, who had died also very, very young, and uh, uh, Shelley was writing a kind of... Uh, um, Epithalamium, is that the right word? No, it's really not the exact word. He was writing a kind of a, 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 requi- a, a, a eulogistic uh, poem for his friend, John Keats. The one remains, the many change and pass. Heaven's light forever shines, earth's shadows fly. Life, like a dome of many colored glass, stains the white radiance of eternity until death tramples it to fragments. Die, if thou wouldst be with that which thou dost seek. Follow where all is fled. Then we get to stanza 53, near the end of this poem. Why linger? Why turn back? Why shrink, my heart? Thy hopes are gone before. From all things here, they have departed. Thou shouldst now depart. And then he, the writer, applies his thinking about the unity of what lies beyond with what is now under the one, capital O, he applies it to himself. Stanza 54. That light whose smile kindles the universe, that beauty in which all things work and move, that benediction which the eclipsing curse of birth can quench not, that sustaining love which, through the web of being blindly wove by man and beast and earth and air and sea, burns brighter dim as each are mirrors of the fire for which all thirst, now beams on me. Um, that's a little hard. It means that the light, the beauty, the benediction, and the love which lie underneath and above all human life in this veil of frenetic futility and fever and striving and uh, think George Harrison here, the eclipsing curse of birth. Remember his song, give me love, give me hope, give me peace on earth. And he says, keep me free from birth. (laughs) Free from birth. The eclipsing curse of birth can quench not. Light, beauty, benediction, love. All these things, which are in various extents in normal human forms, seen to some extent, he says, burn bright or dim as each are mirrors, you and me, that is, of the fire for which all thirst now beams on me. So he takes the big thing and he now takes it uh, to um, 
himself and he applies it. Well, that's really all I wanted to say. Uh, the nature of a half-baked work of art, or in this case, a half-baked podcast, which I feel some rue in relationship to the last, not what I said, not what I said, but simply the rather overly laid back framework uh, or style in which I said it. Um, the uh, PBS, Percy Bysshe Shelley, said something that his own inspired voice drew him, constrained him to say, uh, but this is what I've seen. I, um, the presence of death uh, in my own life immediately put into perspective everything else. And at that point, which occurred, as I say in the Panopticon, on a Friday of uh, January 2007, everything else that I'd ever done, thought, seen, was, did, thought, hoped, fantasized about, uh, was uh, inspired to believe could happen, was raised, uh, put into question, not denied, but put into question by the fact of death, the fact of a death. And this causes one to reflect on the whole business. And then you really see that the only possible option, and I say that very um, intensely, you can obviously disagree, the only possible option is to escape the futility and to, um, in your own vision, and see what lies both beyond and underneath and around and above, but not taking life on its own terms. And then um, you begin to see that you're going from that which is under, over, under, sideways, down. Remember the Yardbird song? Um, when, when, uh, uh, you know, I heard that in Paris in 1966. I just remember loving that song over, under, sideways, down. Well, that's the one. And you realize that when you die, you'll be in unity with that which you're in unity now. It's already here. Um, I was talking with someone very interestingly not so long ago, and uh, she's um, dying, and uh, she's uh, not a member of my family, but this woman is dying uh, of cancer and is really in the latter stages of the final treatments, which are not really probably going to work. But she she's been told she doesn't have much time to live. And she had read, as it turned out, my book, The Panopticon, the new book. I, I was amazed that she had even the ability to concentrate, to read anything that's more than a paragraph, because she's at that stage of her illness. And she said, you know, how did you do it? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I got a, she said, I got a, a terminal diagnosis about three years ago. And it's taken me three years to this exact moment to really at all come to terms with and accept the fact that I'm going, I'm dying, that this world is, is, is over for me. And, um, I've got to leave it all behind, and it's changed everything. And she said, I'm jealous of you. And I said, you're jealous of me? <laughs> she said, because you seem to have seen it in a flash uh, on a Friday in 2007, what's taken me three full years. I was very struck by that. This is me speaking again. I was struck by her uh, saying that because I would have thought it was the other way around. I would have thought when she received her her cancer 
uh, the, the diagnosis of, of, of terminal cancer, that it would have happened to her. But actually, it hadn't happened. It had taken three years of struggle. She had, quote, fought a battle. You know the old thing? You know, he lost a... You read in the paper, after three years of struggling, he lost his fight against cancer. Well, this woman is... She started out by doing everything she could to fight it, and the idea that she was not going to let it lick her. You know, I'm not going to let this defeat me. I'm going to win, you know. And you, you can't. It's absolutely impossible to beat it. I mean, you may beat it for a little time, but you will never beat death. And in this particular case of this lovely person, she cannot lick it. She has not licked it. The evidence is there. And so she had to come to terms with the fact that she couldn't lick it. It was non-lickable. And therefore, everything undefeated, everything was uh, called into question, everything she'd ever known, thought, and done. And she began to then give me a list of all the things that she had done wrong, and there were many of them. All the things, sins would be a way too strong a word, sense of failure, the major things that she had thought were important about her life and her career. This woman has achieved a great deal in her life. And she uh, <coughs> and she just went down the list of all the things that, that, that had really gone wrong uh, and were really... Uh, sources of tremendous regret and loss to her. It was like Charles Foster Kane, if he had the self-possession to actually say what his life had uh, had uh, gone downhill through um, from the very beginning. The curse of birth, she went through the whole business, and then she's ready, and she's ready to move on to that which she already is and which she will become. And uh, so I wanted to read Percy Bysshe Shelley to her. May this be, uh, we knew a guy in a, a church once who would always end his prayers. I think his father had been a, I think an Italian Pentecostal clergyman, believe it or not, in New York City. And he ended every prayer, Lord, may we, he was very emphatic. He, he had a very, very hard time, as it turned out, ultimately, even in relation to faith. Lord, may we, therefore, now come to you with the full and complete confidence, and may we ever be the kind of people that you, and may we find tomorrow, and he would, it's may we, well, um, may we see that the only living purpose of life is to see through and escape the endless messages of um, of seductive superficiality and apparent meaning that confront us. And like Shelley's spokesman in The Triumph of Life, his, those he would wish to uh, imitate, who have not tamed their spirits to the conqueror world, life in the negative sense of it. Life! bursting with vitality, which will only end up in death and the worm. Uh, may we see through it and flee it back to that noon where the eagles live. And may this podcast have created something of that feeling and understanding in thee. 